Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a wellness expert talks about the role sugar plays in our diet. While sugar gets vilified, it might not be the sugar itself as much as what it's partnered with. Sugar is paired with foods that tend to add calories that aren't always the healthiest. A doctor explains how virtual medical appointments are more popular than ever during the pandemic. It caught on very quickly. Actually, after two weeks of our providers going on telemedicine, our numbers of telemedicine visits went up from 10 to over 6,000. And a neurologist tells about a rare type of stroke that is occurring more frequently. CBT is a very rare form of stroke that um, is due to blockage of the veins that drain blood away from the brain. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, Dr. Caitlin Scarlett walks us through a virtual medical visit. Then, Dr. Oliver Otite tells about a rare type of stroke known as CBT. But first, Dr. Koshal Nanavati answers questions about dietary sugar. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may have heard that healthy eating means eating less sugar. Today, I'm exploring that with Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. He's also a frequent guest on HealthLink on Air. Thank you for being here, Dr. Nanavati. Thank you for having me again, Amber. So how much sugar is okay to have on a daily basis? The American Heart Association recommends no more than 100 calories per day for women, 150 for men. That's 24 grams for women and 36 grams for men. But how do you translate that? How much is that? So when you think about it, uh, in terms of teaspoons is an easy way to kind of think about it. And about, you know, they say about four grams of sugar is what one teaspoon holds technically 4.2 for the scientists that are listening, but that rounds down to about four. So you're talking about 24 or 36, you're really talking about, you know, six to nine teaspoons a day uh, of uh, sugar overall. So if you're putting one or two in your coffee, that counts as your daily allotment, right? So one or two teaspoons is giving you about eight grams of sugar. So that right there uh, is about a third at least. Uh, of the sugar, you know, that you can have or that's recommended, uh, you know, according to the experts. Well, let me ask you, what is the danger in eating a lot of sugar? So the danger in eating a lot of sugar is that you're eating a lot of sugar, right? And I say that jokingly, and it's really, you know, what's interesting is some experts and data suggest that it might not be the sugar but it's what the sugar is a part of, which are usually things that contain added calories. So when you think about sugar-sweetened beverages, um, you know, the problem is that the beverage itself, a 12-ounce can of whatever sugar-sweetened, is 150 calories. Uh, and so those are added calories versus a glass of water that's 12 ounces that has zero calories, right? So oftentimes what happens is sugar is paired with foods uh, that tend to add calories that aren't always the healthiest, especially when you think about the standard American diet and what people eat. And so while sugar gets vilified, um, it might not be the sugar itself as much as what it's partnered with. And its partners, its buddies might be the ones that are actually the culprits more than the sugar itself. So is it practical or would it even be considered healthy if you were trying to eliminate all sugar from your diet? Can you even achieve that? So the point is some people with some health conditions may look towards doing that. So we talk about, you know, people who do things like ketogenic diet where they have ketones instead of uh, glucose-based uh, sugars. Um, you know, for certain health conditions, there may be value. For weight loss, people do those things. The reality is uh, what we're talking about is if people are even considering 
that they have to think about the sugars in their diet, that's the first, you know, kind of red flag. Uh, because if we're having a lot of added sugars, usually they're added to something, which is usually packaged, processed uh, type of food. Whereas when you think about whole foods, primarily vegetables, even fruits, fruits have very little fructose uh, and they're sweet. Uh, and so if you're eating whole healthy foods, you're not worrying about this question as much. Uh, it's when you start to eat packaged processed foods or we're adding sugars or we have things that have ingredients uh, that have either sugars or sweeteners or high fructose corn syrup, then now we have to think about the whole package and not just the one thing, because it's usually not the one thing, it's the whole package that becomes the problem. So are the natural sugars that occur in fruit and milk and honey and things like that, are those sugars healthier than, I don't know, cakes that have sugar added to them or cookies? So I think part of your point is actually an excellent point because when you think about sugars in natural substances, so let's take fruit, right? The sweeter natural stuff. Uh, with fruit, there's sugar in there, but there's also a lot of fiber and a lot of other nutrients in there. And in, in digesting the fruit, what happens is the sugar that's coming in comes in slowly over time towards the liver. When you talk about foods like cakes, we have a, you know, a high load of sugar that's coming in all at once. Uh, and so now that becomes a bigger hit on the liver itself in terms of trying to process it. Uh, there's a lot more uh, fructose uh, in table sugar. Table sugar is usually 50% fructose, 50% glucose, and fructose has to get converted to glucose. But if there's too much fructose, then what ends up happening is the body ends up storing that as fat, and that becomes a problem. So uh, when we talk about the foods, uh, when it's in artificial sweeteners or even specifically not artificial sweeteners as much as just table sugars, uh, the problem with that is you get a high load all at once. And that triggers a lot of the what we call obesogenity uh, or even the cardiometabolic risks and all of those things that we worry about with sugar. So can people get into trouble from eating like way too many fruits then or other items like um, honey? Uh, or milk that contain sugar, but they're natural. Can people still get into trouble by overeating those items? So, you know, too much of a good thing can be bad as well. That can be said for most things. So moderation is a great uh, way to exercise a balanced dietary regimen. Uh, generally speaking, if we think about the recommendations for vegetables and fruits, uh, you know, a lot of people say fruits and vegetables, they should really be thinking vegetables and fruits. You should have more vegetables, less fruit. Uh, and with fruit, one of the issues is actually they're healthy. I mean, there's a lot of nutrients, a lot of fiber. And generally speaking, patients ask me all the time, what's the best fruit to eat? What I tell them is the fruit that's in season, right? So that's a great way to think about getting variety as well. But on the other hand, um, because fruits do have sugar, people who have conditions such as diabetes have to be careful about overloading uh, the fruits that they eat. Uh, but generally speaking, even amongst fruits, things like berries tend to have a lower glycemic index, so they're not as strong a load on the liver, uh, and so people can do it that way. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, and we're talking about the place for sugar in our diets. Now, from what I understand, sugar-sweetened beverages and breakfast cereals are two of the major sources of sugar in the American diet. Is that where you advise people to read nutrition labels? Absolutely. And the fact that you have to even advise people to read nutrition labels makes you think they probably shouldn't be eating that stuff uh, because there are natural breakfast foods that are much, much healthier. Uh, things like oatmeal uh, and for people that eat eggs, uh, having things like that or, you know, even multigrain breads and things. But for people that do like cereal, they should definitely look at how much sugar is in there. Uh, and usually when they say added sugars, that's usually referring to fructose, something that uh, when you get high loads, that becomes the agent by which you get some of the complications. It's not that fructose by itself is any worse than any other sugar, but it's the load of it that becomes a problem. Uh, and so when we think about what they're doing, so milk, uh, again, you know, is fine if they tolerate it. That's absolutely fine. Many people get more lactose intolerant as they get older, but if you tolerate it, that's a fine thing to have. But you want to try to have healthy, natural foods 
uh, as much as possible. Uh, and with sugar-sweetened beverages, there's a lot of data about the problem with sugar-sweetened beverages. One study showed that women who had one sugar-sweetened soda a day versus women who had one a month, the ones that had one a day, had a 63% higher risk of rheumatoid arthritis showing. Uh, you know, and so that tells you something. Women that had two to three sugar-sweetened beverages a day had a 20 to 30% increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately what we know is there are many more calories that come along with it. And then depending on the sugar-sweetened beverage, there are other ingredients, many of which people couldn't spell. Uh, and what that tells you is we don't really have a great idea of what these things are going to be doing. We have more animal studies than human studies on a lot of things, but there is human data that we should pay attention to. Now, food labels can be tricky to read, though. Um, it, what are some of the names? I, I We've heard of fructose or high fructose corn syrup, but what are some of the other names that we might see that indicate its sugar has been added, but you know, it's not, it doesn't say sugar. What are some other right. terms? Yeah, so I think, you know, added sugars is a common thing that they say. And then even among artificial sweeteners, there's actually, you know, five that the FDA has approved, right? So saccharin, acesulfame, aspartame, neotame, and sucralose uh, are five that the FDA has approved. Uh, but when we think about it, for a lot of these, in sucralose, there's actually interesting data there with studies in uh, mice where they actually, uh, these mice had actually been uh, given cocaine. And then when they had the opportunity to have cocaine again, um, uh, IV versus uh, oral um, sucralose, uh, the mice actually chose the sucralose. And what that tells us is that there's a high addictive potential with sugars and even some of the sweeteners, uh, especially some of the sweeteners that are 200 to 350 times the sweetness of sugar, when people have those, you actually get sensitized so that then things that have regular natural sugars like fruit don't taste as good. And so you want that other thing. And that other thing is usually added to something that's packaged, processed, that doesn't have the best balance of calories. Uh, and so that's how the, the weight gain concern that people have starts to become a problem as well. So what happens to someone who successfully reduces their intake of sugar over time? Are they going to still crave sugar? So actually what starts to happen, you know, habits take time to form. And so if somebody just suddenly cuts something out initially within that first week, usually there is a point of time where you, you know, feel um, like almost a withdrawal effect or that urge of I miss it. Um, and there's a psychology of when you're giving something up, you know, is it a separation or is it a, a, a finality, right? Uh, I don't want to use the word divorce, but really that's what you're doing is you're walking away and not coming back. Uh, and so it's a mindset, uh, but, you know, sugar is very addictive. It has an impact on dopamine in the brain. And so what that does is triggers you wanting more of it. Usually, if you are at least 48 hours away, you can start to work towards not craving it as much, but the real key to it is having some substitute that's healthier. So, you know, for people that are used to drinking uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, you know, even if they put a slice of orange in a glass of water to have some flavor, it's a transition, uh, and that can be a way to benefit themselves. Some people will take berries and put them in ice trays with some water and freeze them and make little cubes out of them, put that in their water so they still get some flavor. Uh, and get a hint of sweetness, but not an overload. Uh, and I think that's the key is usually gradual changes uh, work better for people, but the commitment is a necessity. Otherwise, people struggle. So if you're a person who has a really strong sweet tooth, is this something that's going to be harder for you to do away with or cut back uh, on at least? You're absolutely right. Well, so what happens is when people have a sweet tooth, you know, they want that, they crave that. And so they have to make a commitment to substituting. Uh, and so people that are used to having dessert after a meal, uh, for them to, you know, eat their meal and maybe wait a half hour or so, and then cut up some fruit, right? And they can nosh on some fruit while they're either doing something or sitting with family or reading or watching a little television, et cetera. Um, or, you know, game night or something like that where everybody can share it. Uh, but the idea is to substitute something healthy 
for something that's not healthy, uh, that still gives you good flavor, and making sure you have variety so that you don't get bored of the same. Because somebody could drink three, you know, uh, sodas a day, sugar sweetened sodas a day for years and not get bored. But you tell them to eat the same food every day, and they say, "Well, that's boring," right? And so it's important for us to know our own psychology and to get creative in the ways in which you do things. You know, cutting up carrots and cucumbers, uh, squeezing a little lime, a little pinch of salt and pepper, if you don't have hypertension or something, uh, that's a great snack. And what it does is gives you flavor, it gives you texture, and it gives you health, all in a nice, simple snack. Now, you mentioned uh, about, you know, the need to eat more vegetables more so than fruits. So are there... What are some of the vegetables that maybe are on the sweeter tasting end of things that people who are more inclined to eat fruits might find more palatable? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, carrots, right? They tend to be great um, and have a lot of benefit. Uh, beets are sweet. They can be mixed into salads and things like that as well. People can even make a nut trail mix. And if you take some almonds and walnuts, add some sunflower and pumpkin seeds, and then some raisins or craisins, uh, that works. Dates are one of the, you know, I call them nature's candy. Now, dates are wonderful. They're a great fiber source as well. Um, plums, peaches, uh, you know, these are all fruits. And then depending on the type of apple, you can go from tart to more sweet. Um, and, you know, in central New York, I mean, this is apple country, right? So we have so much opportunity to experiment with different tastes and flavors when it comes to fruits. And also with vegetables, uh, you think about sweet peppers, you know, they're wonderful to have as well. Uh, and so you can mix and match those things. Tomatoes, uh, you know, people love to argue about vegetable versus fruit. Well, it's sweet, bottom line. And so that, that can work uh, to benefit both ways. So what would you say to someone, um, is it better to just go cold turkey and get rid of the candy bar entirely or is it okay to just say, I'm going to have a candy bar, but only have a fourth of it? So the answer to that is yes. Uh, and by that, what I mean is that it does depend on the person. There are some personality types that need to make a clean break. And for those people, it's really important uh, for them to substitute, uh, you know, four dates uh, or a piece of fruit rather than a chocolate. I mean, why are you trying to cut back in the first place? That's because... Uh, of the ingredients and the fact that there's not any nutritive benefit in that candy bar, whereas there is benefit with fruit. And so, you know, people need to think about how it works for them. But at the end of the day, the goal is to be healthier, to eat healthier. And if you do have a sweet tooth, you know, fill that craving with fruit or sweet, sweeter vegetables versus having a substitute that is still, you know, added sugars or artificial or, you know, man-made and loaded with sugars. Thank you to Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what to expect at a virtual medical visit. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some medical practices were experimenting with virtual medical visits as a convenience before the pandemic, but the pandemic has accelerated the use of virtual medical visits out of necessity. Here to talk about this trend and its effect on the doctor-patient relationship is Dr. Caitlin Scarlett. She's a pediatric rheumatologist who also has a role as an information technology physician at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Scarlett. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Well, let's let's begin with the definition for what counts as a virtual medical visit. Sure. So a virtual visit is basically a visit where the provider is not physically in the same room with the patient. So these visits can happen, you know, in our own hospital, in our emergency department, but they often also happen in the ambulatory world where the physician will be in their clinic or even in their home and the patient will be in their homes. 
So I know that the stroke experts at Upstate, for instance, have offered, they've been able to consult virtually with um, patients that are in rural outlying hospitals for a while now. So that's that was sort of a predecessor to this, right? Exactly. So let's go back to March of uh of 2020 when the pandemic started and everything struck. So here at Upstate, we actually had already established a telemedicine committee that you know had been meeting for many years and they're the ones that set up um, those smaller areas that were using telemedicine, but they were basically in the process of looking at um, what our institution needed as a solution for, um, uh, for an integrated system with EPIC, which is our EMR. So they were already in the process of looking at all of this um, technology. And then boom, you know, right in the middle of March, the pandemic struck and our IT department had to quickly, I mean, quickly come up with a solution for all of our providers so they can see patients in some kind of way. And I just have to applaud them because within a couple of days, actually over a weekend, they came up with the solution for every provider to have uh, the platform that you know they initially came up with was WebEx, to e that everybody would have a WebEx account and they could reach out to these to their patients this way. So it was a lot of work, um, and then you know the uh, telemedicine technology had to be uh, communicated um, to all the physicians. The physicians and other providers had to be taught how to use it, and then workflows had to be developed to um, reach out to the patient, teach the patient how to use these tools. And, um, and templates had to be changed for this to all start. So it was a lot of work, um, but you know it caught on very quickly. Actually, um, I have the statistic that after two weeks of our providers going on telemedicine, our numbers of telemedicine visits went up from 10 to over 6,000. So that's pretty remarkable. Wow. Now you mentioned EMR, that's the electronic medical record. The patient doesn't really have to worry about that part of it. I mean, that's something the physician will be integrating that, the information from the visit into the electronic medical record, right? Absolutely. So our um, the way that most of our providers currently are using telemedicine is they're using the WebEx platform, which is outside our EMR, or there's actually a couple different apps that are very useful. One is called Doximity, one is called Doxy.me that sometimes are, um, are easier to use than the WebEx application. And then the provider will enter the information in our electronic medical record, which is called Epic. Now our um, IT department, of course, is currently working on finding an integrated solution as well, but for the time being, um, they've secured licenses for those other two apps and we have the WebEx solution as well. The patients, they really only need to have either a working computer, a working tablet, or a smartphone in order to connect with the audio-visual telemedicine visits. Um, and I just want to point out that telemedicine visits, there are two types. There's a telephone telemedicine encounter that providers can use. Um, if there's a problem with technology or you don't think that you need to use the, um, you know, the video visual component, and then there's the audiovisual telemedicine encounter. So sometimes we do struggle with patient technology, especially in certain populations, um, you know, older patients that they might not have the smart devices, and then a telephone encounter would be used to connect with that patient. And that actually happens, in all honesty, on a daily basis. You know, I'll be doing my tele uh, telemedicine visits and either on the patient's end, you know, they're not able to connect. Sometimes it's their Wi-Fi, sometimes it's their device. Um, and then I've had a couple of times where it's been on our end, whether I'm here, you know, in my clinic as I am today or whether I'm at my house. So we um, try to be flexible and that's what we try to teach and communicate to our providers. And sometimes if one application isn't working, a different application will work such as um, Doximity or Doxy.me. Um, some providers even use FaceTime, but it's not HIPAA compliant. So we try to um, steer towards those other applications. I'm glad you mentioned HIPAA because my next question uh, was going to be about how we make sure that this visit is indeed private. So, uh, you know, we hear about all of these hacks and, and things. I mean, how do you reassure patients that it's just you and them? Well, um, a couple of the things are the applications that um, we um, kind of encourage providers to use. So WebEx, Doximity, or Doxy.me, they're all secure. Um, they have secure 
rooms um, so nobody can come into the room such as you've probably heard on zoom and um, you know different um, applications like that and we educate so um, our front desk staff at least here in my clinic and every clinic has a different workflow will contact the patient prior to the day of visit and review you know what should what should happen what should be prepared for the visit uh, the patient should be in a private setting that you know um, it, you know, at their wishes, if in their house or in a separate room, if it's just going to be, um, you know, the patient and the doctor, and they don't want their family members to overhear the conversation. And the same thing on the provider's end. You know, we know, um, you know, under our medical license, that you, we need to be the only ones here meeting with the patients. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Caitlin Scarlett. She's an information technology physician at Upstate, and we're talking about virtual medical visits. So, which specialties do you believe lend themselves well to the virtual appointments, and and are there some that really need to be done in person? Absolutely. Um, there are some specialties that seem to be flying very high with the telemedicine encounters. Some of those specialties are um, things like psychology visits or psychiatry visits, or um, you mentioned I do pediatric rheumatology. I also do pediatric integrative medicine, and the integrative medicine visits have been going very well on telemedicine. Um, though, of course, there's other specialties and subspecialties that it's very, very hard to, to do these telemedicine um, encounters. Um, going back to what I just said, I'm a pediatric rheumatologist. And, you know, as a rheumatologist, sometimes we need to put our hands on our patients' bodies, on their joints, on their extremities. We need to look for the very, very subtle clues that their disease might be flaring, such, such as juvenile idiopathic arthritis or um, pediatric dermatomyositis or systemic lupus. So, um, so sometimes these visits don't lend well to our patients who might be in trouble having acute flares of their diseases. Now, um, among all subspecialties, I have a feeling that if the patient is pretty stable, you know, with whatever condition they have, the telemedicine visit is okay, you know, at least for now. Um, and we, you know, we collect different information with our patients depending on, you know, why we're seeing the patient. So sometimes I'll have my patient's parent weigh, you know, my patient. Sometimes I'll have the parent take the temperature. Uh, sometimes I'll have the parent take um, uh, the heart rate. I'll teach them how to do that and they'll take it. And um, here in our clinic, um, where I am right now, I share space with our pediatric nephrologists. And what they've been doing is um, teaching the parents, having the parent and the patient come in when it's safe, teaching the parent how to obtain a blood pressure and then sending them home and having the parent do the monitoring. So there's a lot of you know, different tricks and tips that you could use. We've been getting very creative. I know I'm not the only provider who's been getting creative in um, monitoring our patients, um, but you know, at, least it's, at least it's something, at least we're connecting, which is fantastic given the current pandemic. Do you have a sense for how patients are responding to these virtual visits? It, I mean, do they, do they like them? Yeah, well, I see both sides of it. I have some love them and some don't like them. So a lot of my patients who um, I've been following for quite some time absolutely love them. They love just connecting, you know, even if it's just seeing me on a screen or hearing my voice, um, you know, it's helping, it's adding to their stability. Um, you know, so, so that's a very good thing. I have patients that sometimes drive up to four hours to see me. Those patients also have been loving the virtual visits because they don't have to waste their day driving all the way down to Syracuse. So that's fantastic too. I have other patients that struggle with the technology. So, um, you know, they might have a smartphone, but they, they don't really know how to connect it to Wi-Fi or, um, or, you know, click on the application and go through all the steps. And I've heard from some of my colleagues that their patients that are older, elderly, also struggle with how to do all of this, how to connect with the telemedicine visit, even though somebody from that provider's office is calling them and kind of taking them step by step. So I think it just depends on the patient. So it's both good and bad that we're seeing. Well, how do you think the doctor-patient relationship is impacted by not being in person? And I wonder too, I mean, this has happened during a crisis um, that hopefully will end, um, but is there, I don't know, damage being done now? 
I think there's damage if you're not connecting. So if you're not connecting with your provider, if your provider's office isn't offering these telemedicine visits, whether it's the phone visit or the video visit, if the patient is just cut off from the doctor, I think that relationship greatly suffers. Um, with doing these visits, I think you're keeping that connection together. So that's that's a wonderful thing for you know the patient provider um, partnership basically is what it is. Though I do have to add that um, having a patient in the room with the provider, I think that connection is the most ideal because you're you're seeing them face to face, you're feeling their energy, they're feeling your energy. Sometimes just that connection of being in the room, you know, different things happen. Maybe the patient will reveal other problems. Maybe the provider will sense that that patient is going through something else that wouldn't come across through the video. So, um, so I do think that, you know, of course, it's ideal to have in-person visits, but like you just said, this is a, a very hard time. And um, I think we're doing the best we can. Do you think once the pandemic's over that we'll go back to regular in-person visits for most things? Or do you think there'll still be a place for the virtual visit? Oh, I absolutely think that telemedicine is sticking around. Um, I, you know, there are going to be many, many providers who will go right back to in-person visits, including myself. But I think it might in many areas be a combination of both for those reasons that we mentioned previously, that some of the patients drive very far, some of the patients have chronic conditions, though they might be stable, so they might want to, you know, do an every other, maybe a telemedicine visit and then, you know, an in-person visit for the next check. Um, I think the providers have gotten very comfortable with the telemedicine technology. So I think, you know, it's here. I, and I think it's a good thing that that it's here. Well, there's a growing number of electronic monitoring types of tools and apps, uh, which patients can buy and use on their own. I wanted to ask how you feel about those. Well, I think they're wonderful for the most part, um, keeping track of exercise or energy expenditure, um, heart rate variability. I think that's all wonderful. And they're just more tools to put in your toolbox of help. Um, but the bottom line is, I do I think that they are not a replacement for a provider. They're not a replacement for a physician. So, you know, you still need to make your appointments. Let me ask, since you're a pediatric rheumatologist, do you feel like children have been more receptive to the virtual visit than older people? I think they have. Um, and, you know, we're in a different world right now. Our kids, our patients, my own children, they're used to screens, unfortunately, and we try to limit it, but, you know, it's their world. And now with the majority of them doing virtual learning, it's even more their world. They're very comfortable with the technology. It's actually amazing how comfortable they are with the technology. Um, and they seem very receptive to it. There's something about the telemedicine, you know, it's a different platform um, other than, you know, Zoom or Google Meet or, you know, GoToMeeting. We're using different um, platforms, but they're very similar. And it seems like it's second nature to them to be talking to, you know, to me as their provider um, over their smartphone, which is very interesting. Um, yeah, I think that I've seen, um, you know, the elderly population struggle with it. I've heard from colleagues that even um, you know, some adults, you know, they know that this is what it is and they do it, but um, they're not as comfortable as, you know, our pediatric patients. Thank you to Dr. Caitlin Scarlett. She's a pediatric rheumatologist who also serves as an information technology physician at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What you need to know about cerebral venous thrombosis, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A particular type of stroke is becoming more prevalent, and today I'm talking about this with Dr. Oliver Otite. He's an assistant professor of neurology at Upstate who also specializes in neurocritical care, and he's a member of the stroke team. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Otite. Thanks for having me, Ms. Smith. Now, the stroke we're going to talk about is called cerebral venous thrombosis, or CVT. 
Can you explain what that is? Yes, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVT is a very rare form of stroke that um, is due to blockage of the veins that drain blood away from the brain. Um, when blood is not drained from the brain, you have backup of blood in the veins, like water flowing against a dam in, in that sense. And um, what you have is that the pressure in the brain builds up. As the pressure in the brain builds up and puts pressure on the veins, you could have spilling of the blood into the surrounding brain to cause a brain bleed. You could have damage to the brain to cause a stroke, or you could have um, the pressure in the brain in itself increasing to cause headaches and other symptoms of CVT. So can you help me understand the difference between a CVT and the traditional stroke? I, I thought all strokes had something to do with um, either a blood flow blockage or, or a vessel bursting. How does CVT differ? Okay, that's a very, very good question. So CVT, most forms of stroke usually occur in the arterial side of the circulation. What I mean is that um, arteries take blood from the heart and take it to the brain, while veins drain blood from the brain on their way back from the brain to the heart. So um, most strokes occur in the arterial side of the circulation as opposed to the venous side. CVT is due to blockage of the veins. And those veins can either rupture or it just backs up until the pressure builds up, like I said earlier. I but, see. Um, for arterial strokes, which could either be primary ischemic stroke, you have the blockage of the of the of the vessel or busting of the vessel. But in that case, it's an artery as opposed to a vein. I see. The blood in these veins is on its way back to the heart. Yep. You said this is rare. What percent of strokes are uh, tied to CVT? Yeah, um, it, the estimates from various population-based studies are different, but it is believed that in the U.S. and in most developed countries that um, less than 1% of all strokes are CVTs. So a very, like you said, rare. Very, very small percentage, yeah. Now, you were involved in a study of hospital records from 2006 to 2016. Um, what did you look for and what did you find? Yes, um, we, um, studies evaluating um, CVT incidents in the U.S. have been very rare, especially over the last decade. Um, so we took the state inpatient databases of New York and Florida. That is the database that contains all hospitalizations in these two states. And then we looked for patients with um, CVT across the entire time period from 2006 to 2016. We identified those that um, were new cases and we used, we combined the new number of new cases with the population of the states in the various age groups to come up with um, the incidence of um, CVT in various race, age, and sex groups over time. And um, we actually had a, quite a few interesting findings. One of the major findings is that the overall incidence of CVT in New York and Florida um, ranged from 13 to 20 cases per million population. This is important because um, before now, um, the incidence of CVT in the US was assumed to be between two to five cases per million. And um, this is considerably, considerably higher than um, the reports from prior studies. And we also found that the incidence was as expected higher in young females and lowest in young males. But when we looked at the trend over time, we found that the incidence in all age groups of men and in all age groups of uh, in all age groups of men, what I mean by all age groups, that is those 18 to 44 years of age, those 45 to 64 years of age, and those greater than 65 years of age increased over time. But in women, the um, incidence in young women remained unchanged 
across the entire study period while those in older age groups of women increased over time. We looked at differences in incidence of CVT by race, and we found that blacks had greater than 30% higher incidence of CVT after adjusting for age differences in age and differences in sex. And um, I would say these are some of the most important findings of, of our study. Now, I know you didn't get into this in your study, but what you as a practicing physician, do you have any idea what is making CVT more prevalent in, in some women? Yeah, so um, most of the higher incidence and prevalence of CVT in women is actually believed to be related to pregnancy and um, use of oral contraceptive pills. Um, okay. The last trimester of pregnancy and the first three months after pregnancy is a period where women are particularly vulnerable to CVT. And um, this is believed to be because of hormonal changes associated with pregnancy and um, that the blood also becomes more prothrombotic, that is more likely to form clots during this time period. Um, some form of oral contraceptive pills are also believed to increase the likelihood of blood clots formation. And um, this increased likelihood of blood clot formation is believed to also um, be partly responsible for the increased incidence of CVT in women taking oral contraceptive pills. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neurologist Dr. Oliver Otite. He's been researching the growing prevalence of a particular type of stroke called CVT or cerebral venous thrombosis. So let's talk about the symptoms of CVT. How would a person recognize that this is happening to them? Yeah, this is um, a, a very important question. Traditionally, when we talk about stroke symptoms, we, especially to the public, we talk about fast ED. That is things like um, facial droop, arm weakness, speech disturbance or sensory disturbance, eye deviation, and then um, some form of um, denial of symptoms as some of the symptoms of a his, of his, of his stroke. But in the case of CVT, um, a lot of the symptoms may actually be much more non-specific. And one of the most common symptoms of CVT actually is headache. And the headache, for the most part, maybe actually in some studies, presents in up to 90% of patients. The headache may come in gradually and then reach a peak within days. But it may also be sudden and sort of present like the most severe headache the patient has ever had and um, reaching peak intensity within minutes. The headache sometimes may, result, may resemble what you, what may actually um, be similar to what you would consider a migraine type headache. What I mean by migraine type headache is that headache associated with some form of um, vomiting or um, headache associated with some form of visual changes other symptoms of CVT that are very much more common would include things like seizures. Seizures may be present in up to 40 to 50% of cases of CVT. And um, behavioral changes, confusion, sleepiness. Some of these symptoms may actually be related to increase in the pressure in the brain. Like I said earlier, as the blood backs up in the brain, the pressure in the brain can build up. And as this pressure builds up, patients present with what we call signs of raised pressure in the brain. And um, so patients may become more sleepy. They may have double vision or, or classical symptoms like we talked about. That is weakness on one side and um, um, facial weakness, arm weakness, speech problems, and even language problems as well. So it sounds like what you're describing maybe comes on a little more gradual. I mean, we're always told that with stroke, you need to act quickly, but I'm imagining someone who has a history of migraines might have trouble differentiating at the beginning, at least, whether it's a migraine or a CVT stroke. So do you have any advice? Is this something where they need to get to the doctor quickly? Generally, for 
the headache, like I said, is the most common symptom. But for patients with migraine, we would say if you develop a new form of headache that, that is somewhat different from the usual typical headache you experience, you should not waste time before presenting to the to the hospital. Um, so if someone presents early with with CVT, the outcome is usually a much bet better as opposed to waiting and presenting much later. Because well, let me ask you, if I can, let me interrupt. How How is a CVT stroke treated? Okay, so uh, most patients in the acute period following a CVT are actually admitted to the hospital, okay? Um, if the symptoms are severe enough, they may be admitted into the intensive care unit or maybe into the stroke unit. The immediate treatment for most patients is a blood thinning medications, what we call anticoagulants. And the purpose of that is of the blood thinners is to prevent clots that are already in the brain from expanding and then preventing new clots from developing while we give the body's system weeks or months to work on dissolving the clots that are present in the brain already. For most patients, we use this IV or intravenous heparin or Lovenox for a few few days to weeks, and then we transition them to oral anti anticoagulants. So the treatment for CVT is generally blood thinners such as heparin or Lovenox at first, and in more severe cases, endovascular surgeons can remove clots from the veins by a specialized procedure called a mechanical thrombectomy. CVT sounds like something that would be followed up for a while after a person recovers from this. Are they typically followed by a neurologist afterward? Most patients, after after they started on these blood thinners, they it, it depends on, on what kind of risk factor they have, such as infection or trauma. Um, such patients um, remain on the blood thinners for three to six months. If they have a strong clotting disorder, or if they have some inherited this clotting disorder, the tendency to have more clots is higher in this group of patients. So the recommendation is typically um, long-term or lifelong anticoagulation. Now you mentioned risk factors being some of these inherited conditions, and we also talked about women in the last trimester of pregnancy and in the first three months after giving birth being at higher risk. Are there other risk factors in addition to those? Yeah, so um, certain infections, especially those involving the ear um, and the, no the ear, nose, and throat, and also those in fact involving the coverings of the brain called the meningitis. So patients with meningitis, patients with what we call mastoiditis or otitis, or even sinusitis, um, can have these infections spreading to the venous structures that drain blood from the brain and um, lead to clots forming in that system. Um, patients with certain form of um, um, hematological or blood problems may have increased um, risk of developing CBT, particularly in children, um, not so much in adults, but still a risk factor in adults to dehydration actually on its own, just dehydration, maybe is a risk factor for, for CVT. This has been very informative about cerebral venous thrombosis. I want to thank Dr. Oliver Otite. He's an assistant professor of neurology at Upstate who also specializes in neurocritical care, and he's a member of the stroke team. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Alice Haynes is a family physician in Lewiston, Maine, where she cares for refugees, asylum seekers, and the dispossessed. Her poem, Prognosis, captures a moment of helplessness on the physician's part, realizing no medicine can fix this. Prognosis. One foot is lost both kidneys abandoned, 
he feeds his heart through a straw of tin. Life oozes out, a rusty pot that nut and screw cannot repair. Depleted, the physician sighs, contemplates her empty hands. Thin as a mantis, she stumbles, tears the hem of understanding. The patient bargains for reprieve, disturbed by dreams of roots and damp. The doctor busies books and screens, then marks the chart with arcane words. Another kind of sadness is movingly displayed in Tennessee poet Renee Emerson's poem, Doctor's Tears. Emerson's most recent book is Threshing Floor. Doctor's Tears. The class they don't speak of is the one where doctors learn to see tears the way they see breasts, just flesh, body, as separate from lust as a leaf from the air. ECMO tears, burned arm tears, the tears of mothers holding dead children. They learn to ignore them as friendly people ignore a bad voice singing loudly in the crowd. So when her doctors touched her hair and cried, I knew my infant child had mastered that class and it felt good to see all the white coats break like a plate thrown in anger, the little slivers of porcelain working their way into bare feet. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, racial disparities tied to the pandemic. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm -hmm.